I remember vividly what my room looked like as a kid, but I have no pictures of it. Right? And so part of what I'm doing is I'm documenting the kitchen, the cork board, the, the kids' rooms, all of those little details, the stuff that they have, the little bath toys that the kids have in, at, at the edge of the bathtub. Because I know that this is a, a finite period in time, you know, where the kids are regularly interacting with the parents before they lock themselves up in the room with their iPads and they don't want to talk to their parents. And so I get to see and photograph this dynamic, and it sort of allows me to connect to that time in my life that is pretty much foggy, but to realize that there was a time when I had that similar dynamic with my parents, even though I don't remember it as vividly as I would like to. And for me, this work is incredibly gratifying to a degree that I haven't had in my street photography for, for a while. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. If you're ready to join us in the hustle, listen, get inspired, and discover why, in the end, the creative journey is all worth it. Ibarrio Nex Perello is a photographer, writer, educator, and the host of the Candid Frame podcast. He's worked in the photography industry for over 25 years and is the author or co-author of six books, including his new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow. In this episode, we discuss the difference between taking and making photographs a young Ibarionex learning photography at the Boys Club of Hollywood, and the importance of representation in the photography community. He describes the why behind the documentary project he started after his ailing 86-year-old mother-in-law moved in. And finally, he takes us into his new book, sharing a visual vocabulary of light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture that are the bones of a good photograph. This is We Are Photographers with a Barrio Next Perello, and this is his story. Thank you so much for being here. It is a pleasure to finally have you on the podcast, as um, it was an honor for you to have me on your podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to be on your show. Awesome. Well, let's just dive right in. Tell us about the type of photography that you do. God, I like photographing everything, which I know is a kind of a cliche. But as a as a kid, the very first thing I did when I got a camera was walk the streets of Hollywood making pictures. So there was just something about going out into a street, not knowing what I was going to encounter and making photographs. So it was, has always been an integral part of why I love making pictures. So... In, in some ways, I'm a, I'm a street photographer, though I know the definition of what street photography is can be quite difficult to nail down. But I like photographing in the street. I like photographing in public. I like photographing people. So when I'm on the street, I'll do street portraiture. But in my own personal work, I like doing um, environmental portraiture and documentary work. At one point in my life, I thought I was going to be a, a photojournalist. And then life took over. Uh, but luckily enough, my whole life involved photography. But, uh, you know, right now I'm I'm just shooting 
uh, a lot of uh, documentary work right now. And when I can, do some street stuff. And then my wife and I travel a lot. So we've traveled a lot of places. So I'm always there with my, my little camera making making photographs and just just enjoying the, the act of seeing. Now, I heard you very distinctively use the word make making photos oh, instead yeah. of taking photos and um can you tell me more about why uh, you're so specific about using make you know someone pointed that out to me uh, some years ago that i always talk about making photographs because i never really sort of intentionally used that word as opposed to taking it just seemed to fit better but as i've had chance to to think about it the way i describe it is i think that the difference between taking and making photographs is taking is a fairly passive act, which just involves raising a camera and pressing a button. Um, you're really not actively seeing it all. You really, you just see something you want to document it and you press the button. Making photographs is a much more conscious, proactive choice in which you're carefully seeing what's in front of you. You're evaluating not only the subject, but the light, uh, what's in the background, the lines and shapes, and you're making a conscious choice in terms of what you want that photograph to look like or how you're trying to create a picture in in a way that in the way that you're imagining it. And so you have to make a series of choices in order to make that happen. And I think a lot of people, the great majority of people, uh, do the former. They just take pictures. And sometimes they're good. Most times they're not. But for people who make photographs like I do, we're always aspiring to make uh, a, a, a photograph that does m something more than just look good. What, what I always try to do is there's a moment of excitement and anticipation that, oh my God, this could really be something. And so for me, the challenge is, can I make the right choices to make that happen? And when I do, it's very, very satisfying. And that for me is, is really at the heart of making, making a photograph. What to you is street photography? Well, first I'll say what street photography isn't for me. And it isn't just taking pictures of people walking down the street, which is the great majority of images that you see if you go on Instagram or, or Facebook. And it's, it's, it's more than that. For me, street photography is, is photographing the, the dance, the unpredictability, the beauty that happens on the street, that happens in public. And sometimes it includes people. It doesn't always have to. Sometimes it's just about light and shadow. Um, sometimes it's the convergence of these disparate elements that in the, real, in, in the real world don't have any relationship to each other. But within the context of the frame, they do. And so, many, so much of my time on the street is I'll be walking around and I'll see one, one element and then I'll see a second element and I'll go, oh, here's a third one. And if I can bring them all together in a photograph, I know that they'll work. And that's sort of the tightrope that I'm always walking. There's certain things when I'm looking at a scene that are fixed, like the light and the shadow, the lines of the building, the street, all of those things. So I'll find my composition oftentimes, and then I'm waiting for those fluid elements. It could be someone walking down the street. It could be a bird flying through the scene. Increasingly, it's multiple fluid elements. Like I'm not just happy with just having one single person walking into a shaft of light, right? Because I can pull that out of my butt, right? That kind of that kind of shot. It's very easy because you just you set the stage and you wait for someone to come in. And increasingly, I'm I'm really trying to get 
two or three fluid elements in a composition and have them play off of each other, which is really, really hard because it's there's so much you're leaving to chance as you risk making it more complicated. But there's so many times where I just feel like I could take this shot one better. So I'm never really satisfied with that simple one. I'll still make the shot of that person walking into that shaft of light, but I'm always looking at the edges of the frame and seeing what else is is possibly going to happen. There's just a feeling I get in my chest that I can just anticipate, oh my God, oh my God, this could really be interesting. And even if it if it doesn't succeed, I like the experience of it because it puts me in a sort of a mindset to constantly look for it. I think part of what I love about street photography is that it allows me to embrace failure in a way that I don't do in any other parts of my life because the great majority of the pictures that I make on the street are failures. But because I'm always pushing myself and I'm never settling, when it does pay off, it's really, really gratifying. And I can see that my photography is not just succeeding because I'm duplicating images that I've made before, but because I'm taking it in different directions. I'm curious if you can then take us back to before you are where you are today and the levels mm -hmm. of what you're going to be able to see. And you said that you uh, grew up walking around the streets with a camera. Do you remember an image when you saw your own image early on and had that same feeling of, I, I got this? Um, is well, there a particular image that stands out and can you describe it? That image is one of the very first images that I made. I think I made it the first week I had a camera. And I learned photography at the Boys Club of Hollywood. And so um, if it hadn't been for photography, I would have been a pool shark. Because whenever I went to that club, that's all I did. I spent like four hours at the pool table playing pool. And I got really, really good. And then someone turned me on to a camera, a counselor named Mike Cohen, and all I did was want the camera and stay in the darkroom. But I have this shot, and there's this kid with blonde hair leaning over about to hit the, the cue ball. And that shot is a really perfect composition because he's leaning over, his eye line is at the cue ball, so is the, the, the stick. And then you have all these kids behind him. I used a shallow depth of field, uh, so the focus is right on him. The light is coming through the window and falling on him and the table. And I have a print of that in one of my photo albums. And that photograph is amazing to me because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, right? And I look at that picture and I go, wow. I mean, all the elements are there. I remember that moment. I always remember that photograph because there was such intentionality behind it, which I've always sort of pursued but also at the same time, try to let go of, if that makes any sense. Because part of learning to be a photographer is like mastering the camera, understanding exposure, depth of field, all, all of this stuff, so that you know all the mechanics of it. And then at some point, you have to let that go. And you have to get to a part where it's just completely um, coming from the gut, right? Where you're just, you're just riding the wave and you're just letting the wave carry you. That, for me, is sort of the ideal so I think that I had that when I was a kid without knowing it. And sort of now it's the, the challenge of getting back into that, that mindset. Because even in, on a day where I don't get a good picture, if I was in that zone, if I was in that mindset, for me, that's a good, a good day. Were there other things that you were uh, creative and, and artistic about other than being a creative pool player? 
at the time. Well, yeah, I was I was writing. I was writing stories as a kid. They used to have this uh, first and second grade. They would have this sort of recycled off cream colored paper with like nut lines where you would like practice your your cursive or your printing. And then on the top half, it would be blank where you could draw a picture. So first, second grade, I remember drawing a picture and then writing a little story below it. And uh, I remember when I got my first library card, I remember the day it came in and opened because it was the first piece of mail that I ever gotten. And I remember what that that library card looks like because I was just a big bookworm, so I would just go to the library. But I remember one day going through the stacks and imagining where a book that I wrote would be in the stacks. So I think I always had that image of, the, oh, one day I'm going to write a book and it'll be and it would be right here. And that was sort of a vivid thing. So I say that I imagined myself doing those things, not necessarily laying claim to being a writer or photographer. I'll make that distinction. What's the difference? I think then I just imagined myself actively like writing and taking pictures. I, I don't think I had the, the consciousness then to imagine that that's something that I would do for a living. Because I really didn't have anyone in my life that was doing that stuff that I could see as an example. I, I discovered people when I got much older. For people who can't see me, I'm, I'm a Dominican, so I'm an Afro-Latino. So I, I remember as a kid looking at television, looking at movies, and never seeing anybody that looked like me doing anything that I wanted to do. I didn't have that moment where, oh my God, look at that person who's a photographer or a writer. Oh, I, I can do that. And it only sort of, I think it only really happened when I was in my first couple of years at, at City College where I joined the newspaper that I discovered, oh, I could actually make a living at doing this. I don't have to just do it for fun or for just for myself. I think that's why representation, I think, is so in, is so important. In, in the photo community, for as long as I've been in it, sometimes I'm, I'm the only brown face in the crowd. So I, I don't take that lightly at all because I know there are a lot of people that are much younger than me that may see me and realize, oh, that, that there's – I can make a life in some way. Not that I'm you know, a legendary photographer or writer or anything like that, but just seeing somebody else that looks like you who is doing something you want to do I think is really, really important and is you know, one of the reasons I, I take great pleasure in what I do. How did you break through these um, kind of self-limitations, not having seen anybody that, that you were familiar with um, do what you were wanting to do? How did you push through that? I think what was really critical was that time at City College because I went it's, – it's a funny story. I was just taking a variety of different classes, not really sure what I wanted to do. And I, had, I was taking a class with this one guy and he said one day, hey, the, the newspaper – um, they're having an open house to see about people signing up for the class to join the paper. I said, I don't, I don't know. He said, they got free food. Said, okay. So I went up the stairs up there just to get a free lunch, and I ended up signing up for the newspaper. And the very first assignment I had was covering a board meeting. And at the time, the district was going to be doing some um, cutbacks, financial cutbacks. And I was on the eighth floor where the conference where, the, you know, where they had the, the meetings and they had a bunch of demonstrators out in the street and in the meeting room. And I had just gotten there and there was this guy who was one of the demonstrators uh, who was on the eighth floor and he started wrestling with um, the sheriffs that were there, the campus security. And they tumbled into the uh, elevator and then the doors closed. 
And then Henry Ely, who was the head of the Afro-American uh, Afro Studies Program, I saw him taking down the stairs. So I just followed him, I ran down eight flights of stairs, and we came out into the lobby and they were wrestling the guy, trying to wrestle the guy on the ground. There were people banging on the door in the background. And I just dropped to the floor and I'm about probably 15 inches away from this. And I'm just like taking pictures. The flash is popping. And it may have lasted maybe like 15 seconds. And then I call my advisor and tell her what happened. I says, were you the only one there? I said, well, yeah. He says, get your butt back here. So I went back there. And process the film, praying that I didn't screw it up, and I did, and I had a really good shot. And then she said, "Okay, you're going to write the story." Oh, okay. And so I interviewed the variety of people, and then the next issue, it was like the front page. And I was like, "Oh, I like this." And and as I, you know, stayed on the paper, I think I was on it for about two years. I became the photo editor, and then the executive editor. I got involved in in doing some investigative journalism and doing portraiture and just doing, and it was like, I really not only like doing this, but I'm good at it. And it was the first time that as I gained the positions in terms of being the photo editor and the executive editor was the first time I was put in a position of authority, you know, where I was responsible for not only getting the paper out there every two weeks, but also having to work with the team and, and that it was really empowering that time. And I think that that, that was probably the, the critical thing that helped me to see myself in a completely different way. Because I was, and I always have been awash in insecurities and self-doubt, but to see people who respected me, respected my work, and even as flawed as I thought that I was, that I was still capable, you know, I think that that was a really important part. And I've struggled with it as I've gotten older, but it always sort of returns to this idea of being put in a situation where I'm challenged. And then when I'm able to do it, I surprise myself. Everybody else probably thinks I'm capable of doing it, but I'm, I'm the last one in that line. And when I achieve it and I do it well and I get acknowledged, I realize that it just becomes that much more self-affirming. I want to go back to this. You, you talked about these different roles and how photography was a piece of empowering you. But mm -hmm. what do you believe the power of photography can be in the world? You know, I think there's, it's twofold in, in terms of the person who's making the photographs. It, it allows, well, I'll speak for myself. It allows me to have a voice because I stuttered when I was a kid. So as a result, I, I was very tentative about opening my mouth because I just, you know, my mind and my mouth just weren't in sync. And I was just really scared of being made fun of and humiliated. So I was very insular. I didn't make friends easily. So I was like, I was happy in in, in, in library or in front of a television. But when I got a camera and I would see how people responded to my photographs, again, it was that self, it was that affirmation. It's like the way that I see the world is a value that people see, get to see how I see the world and they affirm my vision of it. So I think to some extent it, it photography provides the photographer um, a voice and license to be able to say, this is how I see and experience the world and it's important and I want to share it with you. In terms of the greater world, I think that photography 
helps us to realize how we're the, we're the same. There's a real value to it. Um, the work that, that often resonates with me is, is, is work that allows me to see the lives of people that I may never get to know in the real world, but who I can see into their lives and take something away that relates to me, right? I, there's a photographer, uh, Safi uh, Sabayek, I'm probably screwing around her, her last name. She documented the uh, last year of her father's life. And it's just beautiful, moving work. And her, her father was in decline physically, and she and her mother were the caregivers. And I look at that work, and it, it, of course, it, it touches me. You know, but it, it talks about so much. It talks about the frailty of life, the importance of, of family and being of service to others. And that's along the lines of documentary work. But sometimes there are photographers who just show me the beauty of the most ordinary circumstances. There's a, a, a photographer in L.A., Quasi Boyden, and he takes photographs, not Santa Monica, not Hollywood, in basically the urban areas of Los Angeles, like the liquor stores and the churches and the open lots, places that I drive by all the time and never took a second look at. And he shows me my LA. This is the LA I've lived in all my life, but I never thought of them as worthy of a beautiful photograph. And his photographs reveal the city to me in a way that I've always experienced it, but didn't really consider it visually. So I like photographers who in whatever way or whatever subject that they, they do sort of make me go, oh, that's there. I've been taking this for granted or I never really considered it. Um, photographers that do that, regardless of what their subjects are, are the, are the photographers that, that really excite me and really, I think, are the best examples of what photography is and can be. You mentioned that you stuttered as a child, which yeah. I find Incredible because you are a podcaster in addition to being a photographer. And congratulations, I believe you have over 400 episodes of the Kid. Yeah, 462 Frank. as of well, today. 462. How long have you <laughs> been doing the podcast? And what is one thing that you hear resonating through so many different photographers' journeys? I've been doing 13 and a half years. And uh, in terms of the stutter, it still comes up every once in a while um, when I get nervous or something. But um, I just I learned to slow down in terms of talking. James Earl Jones had a stutter. And he, uh, he did, did the same thing that I ended up doing. I, I didn't realize until this much later. But he just learned how to slow down. It's one of the reasons he speaks in the way that he, that he does. Because that's part of how he sort of handled his, his, his stuttering. But in terms of the show, um, it's really hard to, to quantify exactly what sort of is like the through line with all the interviews. In terms of my intention for it, one of the things that I wanted to do with it was to let people know that there's not one singular path to leading a photographic life. Because I interview people who are legends. I have people who are just starting their careers. There are people who are professionals. And then there are people who have their day jobs and they just do this stuff for fun. And and like going back to 
seeing myself and other people doing their work. That's really kind of the spirit of the show is like, I want people to know that there's not just way to become a photographer. It's not like, Oh yeah, you have to have a studio and you have to No, no, you can have a, a normal nine to five and on your spare time produce some amazing work. And I've discovered people on Instagram or on Facebook or people giving me a recommendation for a photographer who is just that, you know, they, they they're a dentist, they're, you know, a social worker, whatever it is. And then they go out and they make this work that I don't think may have been possible had they tried to make a career of it. Because when you do that, people think, oh, all you do is make pictures. It's like, no, the great majority of your time is spent running a business, which can be no fun. And it takes away the joy of why you wanted to pick up a camera in the first place. So when I have people on the show that have that great variety in terms of what path they're following, uh, I think that encourages a lot of people to say, oh, I can do this in my own way and it's, and it's okay. And I get emails all the time from people. I got three emails from uh, the last episode uh, of people who were thanking me for that particular conversation and how much uh, of an encouragement it was in, in so many of the other episodes in terms of them, them saying to themselves, oh, I can do this. To realize that we have the power to create whatever it is that we want to create with yeah. our lives. Yeah, And the podcast was a, a, a big thing because I started it 13 years ago and there weren't that many podcasts around. And I, I don't think I would have been able to start the show now because back then I didn't have anything to compare myself with. So I didn't have the burden of, of, oh my God, I have to meet this bar. It's like, no, I could do it and I could do anything that I want. I could screw up. I could make mistakes. And it was one of the, uh, one of the few events in my life where I was willing to go ahead and take whatever risks and fail and make mistakes. Cause I was always very, I, resisted making mistakes in so many ways and that ends up leading to a lot of paralysis but in case of the podcast i knew that i knew enough and that i would just have to learn by doing but because i didn't have you know anybody else to compare myself in it was incredible license to be able to do it but i think that's the case even if there are people out there who are doing amazing work it's like there's there's no reason not to do anything. You're not going to be perfect starting out. You're going to make mistakes. But as you persist and you keep doing it, you get better. I want to talk about some of the more recent work that that you are doing. Um, I know that your mother-in-law has moved yeah. in with you. And so tell me about photographing your family. Yeah, I, I hadn't done a whole lot of that. I, I was always photographing other people. I never was very good about documenting my own life. Um, all the different apartments and homes I'd lived in, I never made very many pictures in there. And when it came to family events, I left the picture taking to somebody else. I just didn't want to be taking pictures of that, that stuff. And I was talking to David Burnett, who is a famous photojournalist, who's photographed every president since Kennedy and every Olympics since 84. And I had interviewed him for my show. We were sitting down and we talked about the fact that we had spent our lives photographing other people and not been as good about photographing our own lives. And around that time was the time that my mother-in-law had moved in with us. And then one day I walked into the house 
and my wife was washing my mother-in-law's hair in the kitchen. And I just happened to have my camera with me and I took this photograph and I went, wow. And then that image and what I had talked to about with David, I realized this is an important time in, in our lives right now. My mother-in-law's 86. Um, she has a little bit of dementia. She has physical and other health issues. And I realized this is an unusual time in our lives as a couple and, and as a family. And it should be documented. So what I've been doing is just photographing our, our lives together. Um, mostly mundane, quiet moments of her coming to the kitchen and having breakfast or when we take her to the doctor or when she goes to the senior center or when she's getting her nails done. And for me, it's been incredibly gratifying because I've been able to photographically apply all that I've ever done on the street within the confines of my own home. Right, So I'm considering all the things that I photograph on the street, light and shadow, line and shape, color, gesture, all of those things are coming into play. But then on top of that, I'm realizing that, that these photographs are and will be incredibly important to my wife and her sister, you know, when my mother-in-law is no longer around. And this, because what I'm capturing is, is as much as I'm documenting the sort of the day-to-day, I'm also um, showing the love between not only um, this woman and her two daughters, but um, the sisters themselves, right? Because it's it's a very difficult time to see your mother sort of in decline in that way, and um, some it can be very frustrating, and it can you know it it it, it gets complicated, right? But I think that from my perspective, when all is said and done, I'll be able to show these pictures to my wife and my sister-in-law and go, see how much you loved each other. See how much you cared for your mother, even though she could be difficult and if it's all the challenges and you know you feel like it's another job for you and all that other stuff, these photographs will be a way of, of, of really um, reflecting what the experience really is, which is hard when you're in the middle of it. Right. And then the other project that came as a direct result of this was uh, I've been photographing families with their children during their morning routines. So like as soon as they get up in the morning on a Saturday or Sunday, whatever happens in their house, I'm photographing it. So it's like them getting ready for breakfast, going out and going to soccer practice or, you know, helping um, someone like do their hair or whatever it is. And, and again, it's kind of like that familial dynamic. So I'm like covering both extremes. Like kids are very young and then you have a very elderly adult who is pretty much a kid at at this point. Right. And it is also about not only the interactions, but also the space. Cause there's so many, I remember vividly what my room looked like as a kid, but I have no pictures of it. Right. And so part of what I'm doing is I'm documenting the kitchen, the corkboard, the, the kids' rooms, all of those little details, the stuff that they have, the little bath toys that the kids have in, at, at the edge of the bathtub. Because I know that this is a, a finite period in time, you know, where the kids are regularly interacting with the parents before they lock themselves up in the room with their iPads and they don't want to talk to their parents. And so I get to see uh, and photograph this dynamic 
and it and it sort of allows me to sort of connect to that time in my life that I is pretty much foggy but to realize that there was a time when I had that similar dynamic with my parents even though I don't remember it as vividly as I would I was like as I would like to and for me this work is incredibly gratifying to a degree that I haven't had in my street photography for for a while because with street photography it was more about challenging myself visually not necessarily trying to tell a story or anything like that and in this case I'm able to practice and improve my skills as a photographer but create pictures that I think have a much greater significance and value than anything I've done before what are the elements when you're doing these projects, whether it's the one um, in your home uh, with your mother-in-law or other people's homes? What is the, the process that you go through that you just kind of describe in your book? Yeah. Um, in the book, I what I attempted to do is I, I wanted to break down the, the process of seeing, not just how to take the picture. So I, I broke it down in terms of light and shadow line and shape, color and gesture. So those are the things I'm always thinking about whenever I'm making a photograph, regardless of where it is, because those are the basically the bones of any good, good photograph. And most people, when they take photographs, they're not necessarily conscious of all of those things simultaneously. They may learn something about light and shadow and they'll go, okay, I'll make this high contrast image, but they're not paying attention to all these other things in the, in the scene, which end up ruining the photograph. So this process of looking at these graphic visual elements allows you to sort of parse the scene as you're taking a look at it and figuring out, okay, what do I need to include and exclude? And it provides people a vocabulary to understand what they're looking at. And when people learn that, not only does it improve their ability to take a photograph, but when they take a look at their photographs, so many people struggle with trying to figure out which one is the good one. And I go, well, if you just if you take a step back and just go, okay, what's happening with light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture, you can start comparing images and you can sort of figure out, oh, okay, this one's better because because of the contrast between this light and shadow or this line is sort of leading up to to the subject. And just repeating this thing as a mantra over and over and over again gives you an understanding of, okay, this is why pictures work, because if you. Take those principles and look at photographs of people who you really appreciate and you enjoy as photographers. You'll understand why the picture works rather than just going, oh, I just like it. Because when people take my workshops, the first day when we're coming back from shooting, they say, I didn't get anything good. I think it just sucked. And inevitably, I'll see one or two photographs that they shot that were really good. And they have, they have no understanding why it's good. So when I teach the workshops by the second day, I'm just sitting there with my arms crossed and it's like, okay, you guys know the drill. Let's critique the pictures. I don't want to hear about it. I like it. I say, okay, let's just like break it down. What's happening in terms of light and shadow, line and shape. And I just kind of, so by the time they're, they've, they've left, they have an understanding. And that's all I try to sort of encapsulate in the book, as well as talk about sort of the personal, my personal journey as, as a photographer. Because each chapter starts with a picture and the story behind it. But a lot of those stories involve not just what led me to make the picture, but how I was feeling. You know, what was going on in my head and and, and tries to bring um, as much of my experience 
of the moment of making that photograph as as, as I could into a, into the page, rather than just giving a bunch of technical information because that's that's only part of the process. There's a like we were talking about earlier. There is a an emotional, physical, spiritual spiritual experience that when you're in that zone of making photographs, and if you only talk about the technical side, you're leaving two thirds out of the stuff that really makes makes for a, a, a great image. Not that you can't make a good picture, but I think everyone is aspiring to make a great photograph, and you can't do that just relying on the technical side of it. Because I've seen perfect, perfect Im- Im- images that leave me feeling nothing. Thank you for creating this book, for doing the workshops, for having the podcast, uh, really uh, just putting um, this creativity out there in the world to guide other people to do the same. So where can people find you, follow you, take your workshops, get the book? Uh, Tell me all about where to find Ibarian X. It's all in one place. They can go to thecandidframe.com. And then they'll find a gallery of, of, of my photographs. Um, they'll find a list of the workshops that I'm teaching. They'll find uh, the, the show. We have an app uh, that's available. So if you want to access the entire archive, you can download it for, for free. Though you can listen to it on Spotify, iTunes, that's out there. And if people want to pick up the latest book, uh, it's on Amazon and all the usual places, but if people go to the Rocky Nook website, rockynook.com, and use the promo code Perello40, that's P-E-R-E-L-L-O, uh, numeral 40, they can get 40% off uh, uh, the list price uh, of the book. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for that. And we love Rocky Nook and just great team of people uh, putting so much creative education out there. Well, thank you so much, Abari Nex. It's been really a pleasure. I could keep talking and talking and talking to you for days. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Ken. And thank you for ha- having me on your, on your show. And, and best of luck with the podcast. Thank you. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, we've got a class or two, or thousands, for you to check out. Just head on over to creativelive.com. For those of you brand new to Creative Live, welcome to our global community of over 10 million strong. We have a special gift just for you. Use the code WEARPHOTOGRAPHERS at checkout and get $10 off your very first purchase. That code is WEARPHOTOGRAPHERS, all one word, no spaces. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review both this podcast and The Candid Frame from Abario Next, wherever you listen. And in fact, you can listen to episode number 375 of The Candid Frame to hear Abario Next interview me for his podcast. Thank you again to Abario Next Perello. I'll see you next week for another episode of We Are Photographers.